Okay. Well, you know, you, you do a class on uh, sex and marriage and the place is packed out. You do a class on evangelism. It's about third the size. You do a class on prayer and it's even smaller than that. So <laughs> it's kind of what we expect. But uh, the few, the faithful, this is kind of a, the, this is the special ops right here, isn't it? You guys are the ones. You're the, you're the driving engine of, uh, of this church right here. Uh, you know, evangelism, uh, it's been said that a church that doesn't do evangelism is a church that implodes within itself uh, because they're so busy being so fed within that when they don't give anything out, they just get bigger and bigger like a big blip and eventually they just kind of burst within from just their own kind of self-absorption. You know, a church that, um, a balanced church always does outreach and evangelism, always, because it's a function of who they are. And so, Ron wanted me to do about three weeks on just evangelism. And what we're going to do is I'm going to walk through today just kind of the, um, the purpose, the background of the, uh, of the church, our purpose as individual believers. And in the next two weeks, we're going to do kind of practical steps on evangelism. So what I did is um, I went ahead and made a sheet here just to kind of talk about this idea of evangelism. And I found a really great definition that I love. And it's actually uh, a definition that's used. Hey, Corey, did you get your sheet out there? Um, I got a definition here on evangelism by uh, the Anglican denomination that they, they put this together. I think it was in the 1980s they put this thing together. Look at this definition of evangelism. I really like it. It reads, uh, To make known by word and deed the love of the crucified and risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that people will repent, believe, and receive Christ as their Savior, and obediently serve Him as their Lord in the fellowship of His church. Uh, I think that is one of the most comprehensive definitions of evangelism that I've that I've ever read. And so I want to kind of pick that apart for a minute with you guys to kind of look at this, and then we're going to unpack it here, because uh, I think they really constructed this. This was where a bunch. Of I think easily several hundred bishops convened in Great Britain to come up with an agreed-upon definition of evangelism, and they constructed this statement. And so many, many hours were put together incorporating all the essential aspects of it, and I think they just hit it dead on. Uh, number one, it's to make known, okay, which means it's a revealing of something, right? That's the idea. Evangelism is revealing something. And it is revealing what specifically? Evangelism is the revealing of what? What's that? The good news. That's it. It's the revealing of the good news. The gospel. Right? So, we want to make sure we understand exactly what this is. The gospel is the good news. Now, before we go any further, you guys have heard this a thousand times in Sunday school probably, but why is the gospel called the good news? Make sure we're all clear on this. Why is it good news, Case? You get to meet Jesus. You get to meet Jesus, right, right. But what's good news about it? What was the bad news? <laughs> That's right, we're born into this. I mean, it's a good thing because now you don't have to spend eternity hell and now you get, to, you get to have a relationship with the. There you go, right. So it's good news because God has provided a means for us that we might be reconciled. That's a key word, okay? Reconciled to Him. That's the key. It's good news because God 
has provided the way that we might be reconciled to him. Not man. When man tries to provide the way to be reconciled to God, what's that called? Religion. Works. Right, okay? When God provides the means that man might be reconciled to him, it's called the gospel. Okay? And it's good news because that means the burden is not on me to have to attain to anything that God, uh, that's going to meet God's righteous require, requirements. Because how are we going to do? John, how have you done this week to meet God's righteous requirements in and of yourself? No, thing. Not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. In and of yourself. Yeah, not a thing. We fail. Um, I failed driving here. Uh, sorry. They were going the speed limit. It kills me when people do the speed limit. That was me. Yeah. So, what we do is we make known, okay? It's a revealing of what God has revealed to us, see? The only way we know what God has done to reconcile Himself to us is for God to tell us what He's done. We didn't just come up with what God has done, so it's a revealing, and that's the key here. It's, the only reason every one of us are in this classroom right now is because at some point, someone revealed to us what God had revealed to them whom God revealed to them, and so on. But ultimately, the first cause was God's ultimate revelation to man. Y'all see how that works? So, evangelism is nothing but the revelation of what God has done for man. So, it is making known, and I love this distinction they made here, by word and deed. Now, a lot of people today have made evangelism what? Well, some make it by word only. And what are those people like? They're a lot of fun, aren't they? They're a blast at the party, right? People that are that are evangelism by word only are usually either hypocrites, right? Or they're hard. They're socially distasteful. Uh, they're condemning. They're judgmental, right? So that's not real good. If you're just evangelism by word only, you're just you're you're a loser, right? What if you are evangelism by deed only? What's that person say? Give me the language here. What does this person say? Okay, maybe in that sense, it's my relationship to God. I'm earning it. Yeah, or maybe it's, what if they say this? Uh, my life is a witness to people about God. Right? You ever hear that? Really? What's the problem with that statement? My life is, a, is the gospel to other people. Okay, number one, yeah, don't do that to the gospel. Right? Okay, so, uh, but let's say your life is a decent life. Okay, what's still the problem? There's no real communication of, of, of the real gospel. Or, uh, right. The gospel. Yeah, what is it about your good-natured, giving, kind life that communicates the act of reconciliation before God and man? See, and this is where a lot of people have gone as they seek to live the good life and therefore say, my life is a gospel or a witness to all people. I don't need to have to go around telling people about it. I just live a life that exhibits it, right? Now, do you need to live a life that exhibits it? Yeah, why? What's okay, one, you look like a hypocrite if you don't, and then you're, you're a guy by deed, right? And two, before a person listens to what you really have to say, what do they really want to know? Yeah, do you live it? And do you really care about me? You know, I mean, is your life a life that's really committed to people? You know, are you just trying to get another tick in your Sunday school notch belt, you know, to get another person in church? Or are you really investing your time and your energy and being concerned about me? 
See, because if you spend the time with my life and I see that investment, then I believe that you also care about my soul. So don't talk about my soul if you don't really care about my life. See, because to a person, those two are indistinguishable. And I think what the world really hates the most is that they really perceive evangelicals as people who just care about what? Just the soul, right? And so all they do is they're just pretty much by word alone. And we're not people who really are invested in the lives of people by deed. So I love the distinction they made. One cannot go without the other. So it's to reveal or make known by word and deed, and this is key, the love of the crucified and risen Christ. Why is that key? Not just the act, not just the event, right? Not just the power, but it's the love. Why is that significant for the gospel? Perfect. It shows you the, the intense relationship that God longs for man, right? And that is, uh, what is one of the three things that the Bible says God is? It says God is life, God is truth, and God is, is, is love. God is love. Um, John says they will know us by our what? Deeds? By what? Our love, which expresses itself. Indeed, eventually, right? But they will know us by our love. So it's this aspect of love that needs to be communicated. Um, I would say that in my in my experience, one of the reasons a lot of people don't see a lot of fruit from sharing the gospel is because the aspect of love, oftentimes, is devoid from that. Uh, they're trying so hard to communicate content. Right or to communicate just the propositional content of the gospel, um, trying to just get it out. I shared the gospel, right? Um, and they feel like they've they've done it, but they haven't really couched it and, and and surrounded it in any sort of sense of love for this individual. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, and so this is absolutely key to really express not just our love for them, but the utter love that God has for them. And it's of the crucified, which is great, the death of Christ. What's the significance of the death? What was the role? What was the point of death? Okay, what was it about the death that was significant? What's that? Payment for sin, right? And the and what was the what was the significance of the risen Christ then? What's that? Okay, it's everlasting life, power over death and sin, right? And ultimately hell. That's right. So you've got payment for sin through death and sacrifice. The risen Christ, the significance of the resurrection, it, it confirms the power over sin and death. See, all of this is encompassed in the gospel message right here. In the power of the Holy Spirit. So who ultimately does the work? Is it our fine-sounding words? No. No. Uh, there's been times that and you guys may have experienced this too. I mean, I've gone and I've shared the gospel with somebody and I'll sit down with them. And I mean, I, I could not have been more articulate. I mean, I was money. I was on. I hit every emotional story along the way. I hit the woman at the well. I hit it all. You know, and I get done and they're looking at me like deer in headlights. They just don't get it. And I just think, did you? I was good. I mean, I was really good. 
You know, and then I can think of the first time I ever led a girl to Christ. I was uh, 21 years old, and I did this thing called Evangelism Explosion. We went door to door, which scared me spitless. I didn't want to do this. And there was a girl, I think her name was Kelly. And we went and knocked on, on this door, and she opens the door. And it was my first week to have to speak. And that was the week that I prayed that everyone was in Cancun, right? <laughs> knocking on the door, praying they're on vacation. And Kelly opens the door, and I said, hi. And I had a guy and a girl behind me. And I said, hi, my name is Walter, and we're from the church that we were from. And we're talking to people just about spiritual things. I was hoping that maybe we could have a few moments to talk to you. And she said, sure, come on in. And I was stunned. <laughs> that we're walking right. Yeah, I've got a meeting. So we walk in and she says, hey, y'all have a seat. And so I had this outline. And if you, anybody ever done EE, Evangelism Explosion? Did you? Okay. It's a pretty rigid outline, remember? And you can't deviate from it. You've got to do the outline. So it's kind of canned. It's a great program to eventually, in my opinion, take and then just kind of work yourself. But when you're doing the program, in order to get your certificate, right, <laughs> and be you know, nationally sponsored, right, yeah, to get that check mark, you have to do the outline, which means they can't say anything. You've got to say it all, ask them a few questions along the way, and you just, you just trod through this thing, right? And it's long. It's like a... 12 to 14 minute presentation of the gospel. God, man, faith, sin, salvation, right? Just going through this outline. And I'm doing this and I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, man, I'm striking out big time. And I'm asking her all the questions. You know, one of, one of the parts of the outline, it's, it's just kind of comical. It says, when you get to the end of it, you say, Kelly, when I first got here, I thought I had good news for you. Now I know I have great news for you. I mean, just terrible. I don't care how many times you rehearsed that. It's bad. All right? It's a great program, but that's just how it was. It was just this real tightly constructed evangelism program, and you had to memorize it. Right? And that's what you did. And I remember I said that. At first, I thought I had good news for you, Kelly, but now I know I have great news for you. And the whole time I'm thinking, that sounds so bad. (laughs) And she goes, really? And I go, yes. That wasn't in the outline. (laughs) Right? And my leader's looking at me, you know, that's not in the outline. And and so I I, I do the whole chair illustration. You see that chair you're on, Kelly? Yeah. Do you believe that chair next to you can hold your weight? Yeah. Do you, do you know it? How do you know it? She said, because I've sat in it. Oh, but the first time you ever sat in it, you had to get up and put your faith in it and sit down and make sure it could hold you. Right? Right. Well, that's what the gospel is. To, you have to get up and put your faith in Jesus. You know, and all of a sudden, like lights are coming on for her. And I said... Is this something you've ever done? Have you ever? And she said, no. And I said, would you like to do this tonight and pray to, to, by faith to give your life to Jesus Christ? And she goes, yes. No. And I went, what do I do now? <laughs> I never got to that part before, right? But it was terrible. I mean, it really was. It was just, 
I'm choppy, and the whole time I'm thinking about the outline and what's the next illustration, and she's like talking back to me, and I'm not even hearing her because I'm going to my next point because I'm thinking I want to get my box checked off by the end of the day because I don't want to do it again. But she gave her life to Christ, and uh, it was just it just blew me away that it wasn't about fine-sounding arguments and apologetics and the persuasive tongue and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just power of the Holy Spirit. You guys ever see that? Just the most bizarre work of the Spirit. You know, a buddy of mine, good, uh, he got saved by calling somebody. It was the wrong number. He hung up, calls back it's the same number, and the guy on the other end of the phone says, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. He says, uh, I think God wanted you to call me back. And he started sharing the gospel with him on the phone, and my buddy gave his life to Christ over the phone with this stranger, ended up going to Dallas Seminary, and now is a full-time minister. Is that crazy? Uh, or uh, one of the great pastors in, in Southern California, it's like Swindoll or something, I remember him telling the story where he had a tape. I love these stories. And he said he always put this tape in his car, and it was one of those that his car ever got hijacked, and someone started driving the tape of play, and the tape was, stop. If you're driving this car right now, you're probably stealing it. And God says, thou shalt not steal. But I've got good news for you. That God has come into this world. And it's a gospel presentation. A guy ends up, coincidentally, hijacking, taking his car, gets saved, goes back and takes the car back and waits for the guy to show up and tells him what he did. It sounds bizarre, but man, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just... It's like uh, John says, you know, Jesus says the wind comes and it blows and no man knows which way it goes. It just blows in the craziest of ways, you know. So, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, why is that good news for you and me whenever we decide to share the gospel and do evangelism? All right. I don't have to worry about anything other than I just have to be faithful, right? Just be faithful. And if it comes off choppy, if it comes off great, it doesn't matter. The deposit's the same. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's all that it is. The Reformers in the 16th century, they broke faith down into three components. Um, This is free today, but I'll go ahead and give this to you. Um, They broke down saving faith into three components. These are the words they used. The first one was called notitia, and it was the word for knowledge. Right? So, in order to have saving faith, what do you have to have? You have to at least on a base level have knowledge of the content of the gospel, right? Then they said the second component is what they called a census. What word do you think we get from that? Assent. What does it mean to assent to something? To agree. To say that, that that's true. I believe that. Okay? On a cognitive level. And the reformer said these first two elements, these are the responsibilities of man, of us. That we proclaim the content of the gospel and we do all that we can to get a person to agree with the content of the gospel. That's true. So, we do have a responsibility to show the reasonableness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, to persuade, as 2 Corinthians says, that we seek to persuade all men, Right? But the third element is what they called fiducia. 
fiduciary. Yeah, there you go, fiduciary. Um, what, is, what, what do we get? What's fiduciary mean? <coughs> Have you ever heard of a, like a fiduciary trust? That's what it is. It's trust, right? Or a saving faith, right? Fiducia means trust. This, guess who does this? Well, who's responsible for this? We're responsible for doing this to a non-believer. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's the work of trust. That I can't, I can't get somebody's heart to say, I'm ready to now give my life to this. You know, I can tell them what's required, and I can even get them to say, no, I, I believe that. But I can't get them to, to suddenly move their heart to now, to now do that. That now has to be the operation of the Holy Spirit. See, and that's what we have to realize. So, a lot of times you see, unfortunately, a lot of manipulation, a lot of times, in church to get people to get saved. you guys know what I mean by that? What do you, what do you see? How does that operate today? How do you see that sometimes? Give me an example of what you see. What's that? Okay, guilt. Yeah, like what? Give me, give me a classic guilt thing that you'd hear. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Do you want to go to hell? You know? Do you not ever want to see your children again? Right? And you'll hear that. Uh, you don't want to ever see your children again? Do you not ever want to see your loved ones again? You know, all of a sudden there's just, oh, yeah, I do. Well, trust Jesus. Right? And suddenly they just do these, these manipulations of your emotions in order to get you want to trust. Right? How else do you see people manipulate? Yeah. It's not to say that there's... I don't know who follow who. Right. Yeah. It's not to say that there's nothing authentic about it. But we have to be careful that we don't play off of behavioral techniques. You know, and that's the key is a lot of times the church is real good at marketing and behavioral and behaviorism that we can predict human behavior if we manipulate certain things. If you, know, you play the right song, you say the right things, you, you hit the right string chords. You know, there's we, ways to do that. You know, Jonathan Edwards, if you guys have ever heard of him, he was one of the great, great minds and hearts of American Protestantism. Um, he was the first, second president of Princeton University. Um, but probably the, probably the most intelligent philosopher in American history and theologian. And Edwards... Whenever he would finish his sermon, he would always preach a sermon. With he'd have his notes in this hand, and he'd have his lantern in this hand, and he would read his sermon in monotone on purpose. Outside of the fact that he was already a scholar, so he was probably already boring as could be, because he said he didn't want any of his inflection or his voice to have anything to do with the conversion of the heart. That he wanted it to be nothing but the content and the propositional truth of God's Word. And what he was responsible for was writing as profoundly and as honestly as he could the truth of God in the Scriptures, and then he would read it. And at the end of his sermon, he would end it, this is his altar call, May God have mercy on your souls. Let us pray. And people would fall down, and they would be crying out, begging for God's mercy. And Edwards knew that it had nothing to do with his manipulation, with anything that he was doing, that he believed that it was all about the work of God. And if people came to faith in John Ed- at the end of John Edwards' sermon, you think it was probably real? <laughs> probably so. You know. Um, but you hit the revivals of the 
of the mainly the second great awakening and certainly you had the Charles Finney's and these guys come out who uh, even the George Whitfield who George Whitfield was a guy he's considered probably the greatest preacher in American history you guys ever heard of him George Whitfield he ended up becoming Benjamin Franklin's best friend if you knew that or not uh, Benjamin Franklin was a deist didn't go to church was real suspicious of religion in that sense and Benjamin Franklin heard the legend of George Whitfield, and he was kind of sick of it, actually, because everyone kept saying Whitfield was so amazing that he could speak up to 20,000 people. Almost a mile away, you could hear Whitfield's voice, they said. And Franklin didn't believe it. So Franklin, being the big scientist, heard that, Whitf that Whitfield was coming to Philadelphia to preach. So Franklin decided to go and hear this Whitfield fellow um, from Great Britain who was coming over. And uh, Franklin tells us in his diary, I remember reading it, and he said he went and he decided to measure the size of the crowd and to go ahead and do a guess on how far back you could be to hear Whitfield's voice. And Franklin says in his diary, sure enough, it wasn't merely legend, it was true, that this man had such power and uniqueness in his voice. And Franklin says in his diary that when he gets there, he resolved in his mind that when the hat went around, for money for the collection that he would give him nothing but he said about 10 minutes into the Whitfield sermon Franklin said he resolved to give him only his coppers <laughs> and then he said about halfway through Whitfield's message he resolved to give him his coppers and his silvers and then he said by the time the hat got to him he gave him copper silvers gold and all in his pocket <laughs> and uh, he ended up writing Whitfield a letter and uh, Whitfield, Whitfield wrote him back and they ended up becoming best friends. And he said, Whitfield is the greatest argument for the truth of Christianity that he's ever met because he lived the life of his words. Um, but Whitfield was a very dynamic dramatist, right? And, and he, was, he was actually going to go into stage acting if he didn't be, be, go into evangelism. He was an Episcopalian or an Anglican minister. Well, he didn't fit real well with his dramatic uh, displays in the Anglican church. And so he began doing stump preaching. He was one of the first guys to do stump preaching. And so uh, these guys began a movement where you began to see a lot of emotionalism being added into the gospel. And uh, southern evangelicalism, southern fundamentalism, we've kind of picked up a lot of that. And so we have elements of that. But we have to be careful with that kind of stuff that we don't make salvation based on that, but that simply we use it in the right way. That's true. Yeah, I went to his deal in Dallas. Did you guys go when he came to Dallas? Yeah. It's almost now he's such a legend that people are just ready to go down. But in his early days, you're right, though. I mean, he was a one among many, just one of these young kind of fiery preacher guys that somehow got elevated, but his words God has used. Uh, that's a lot of time here, but I really want to emphasize that this is the work of the Spirit, and so it should take the pressure off of us. And the purpose is so that people will, and here are the three aspects of true conversion, they would repent, believe, and receive Christ as their Savior and obediently serve Him as their Lord in the fellowship of His church, which I think is key also. That um, the purpose is that we don't just we don't just bag them, right? We uh, we we bag them and then we we bring them to the store, all right? And you, and you and you now you have to have this process of of moving them into the local church so that now they can begin serving and using their gifts and now being part of community. So, that is evangelism defined right there. I think it's just a really, really great summary statement of evangelism. Any comments on that statement right there before we get into a couple passages?
Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I was struck when I was this week just studying, and I ran across it, and I thought, man, this has got every element in it, um, which I love. Well, if you have your Bibles, look with me uh, at First Peter chapter 2. I want to show you a couple passages here as we kind of un- unpack this a little bit more. First Peter chapter 2. Peter here is talking to believers, to the church in general, uh, but specifically to us as believers. I want you to see a phrase he uses that I think is really a choice phrase that r- Protestants is one of the hallmarks of Protestantism. Um, beginning in verse 5, look here. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, right away, what language is he using here? Spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What, what are you immediately, what are they thinking of? What was the spiritual house back then to a Jew? The temple. And what was the royal priesthood? Who was that? Yeah, it was the high priest, right? The high priest and the Levitical priesthood. So he's using this language, this Jewish language of temple and priestly worship. So he says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices as opposed to what? What are the priests? What's that? Animal sacrifices, right. We now offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you notice on your notes here, letter A, I put, we, number one, are a holy priesthood. Now, uh, you guys, are you familiar with that doctrine known as the priesthood of believers? It is one of the fundamental doctrines of Protestantism. That, uh, anybody here grow up or maybe even might be in the Catholic, in the Catholic faith? Anybody here? Okay, if you remember... In Catholicism, there really is a division between the uh, the priests, okay, and what they call the laity, okay. The laity is going to be just the the average people, right, that are not ordained uh, ministers. And so, this division here was shown in a number of ways prior, especially prior to 1962. For instance, all the masses were done in what language? They were always done in Latin, regardless of what your native tongue was. Okay? So, the majority of the people, a lot of times, wouldn't even understand the Mass because they didn't speak Latin anymore. Uh, what else uh, showed this division during the Mass? What did that... Uh, well, certainly confession, going to the priest, right? Exactly. That was another aspect of the sacrament, that you would go to the priest and show this division between, I go to the priest for confession, that he might now be a mediator between myself and God. You would also have a veil. Do you remember the veil? Right, the way it was set up a lot of times is there would be a veil between the priest, right, and the, and, the, and the congregation so that you couldn't see them doing the Mass or, or, or doing the Eucharist uh, because there's supposed to be a veil there. Right? right, so you would have a railing a lot of times um, and you would always have their back to you also. You could never see the, the front of the, of the priest. So they had a lot of physical ways of, of showing this division. Well, when the Reformation hit, they, in a sense, tore down the veil, right? And what they did is they came up with the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, which means what? Everybody is what? We're all priests, see? There is no priest-lady distinction except that one gets a check and the other doesn't, 
right? But there's no distinction. And you'd always hear people say, like even this last week, I'm on the tennis court and I'm teaching a guy that's in the Catholic Church and uh, he's a believer, he knows Christ and uh, he's hoping this multi-million dollar deal goes through. And he says, hey, listen, I know that you're a man of the cloth. <laughs> and he says, um, and he says, and I know that your prayers probably go a little faster than mine. So would you mind praying that, that God would just have this deal go through for me? Wow. Right? Now, what's behind all that? What is he, what's he seeing between he and I? Right. And, you know, and I want to go, yeah, there is a difference. I paid $320 an hour for it. And I'm broke as a result of it in seminary. And you didn't. That's the only difference here, right? But he does. He sees this, this veil, right? That somehow I'm here and therefore I have quicker and better access because I'm a man of the cloth, right? Um, and I said, Scott, I'll pray for you. But I said, my prayers, you know, aren't going to go up any faster than yours. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. You know, God... You know, you give your life to God, you know, and blah, blah, blah. It's just this unfortunate sense. Whereas as a Protestant, you recognize, no, no, we're all priests right here. I can be the thief on the cross and in, in, a, in the last moment go to Christ myself and he can say, surely, surely, today you will be with me in paradise. I can be the thief on the cross and do that just as much as I can be Peter or John. It doesn't matter. There's no distinctions. See? And that's important because that is what causes us. Now, we offer, as a result, because we're all priests, we all offer what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You know what that's called? That's called worship. That's what we do. That is, our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. It used to be the killing of Buffy the Lamb. It's no longer that. Now it's worship. It's my... Uh, what we offer the Lord now is a consecrated heart. And we offer Him, with the right heart, songs of praise. And our minds consecrated to God and study of His Word and these sorts of things, right? And this is an act of worship. And that's what we do. We are a people who are a worshipful people. Jesus said, God is spirit, and therefore we should worship Him in what? In spirit, there it is, and in truth, Okay? That's how we worship Him. And so there is a fundamental aspect of worship among us. But, keep on going down here. Look in verse 9. Peter also says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may, what? Declare. Anyone have a different word than declare in your Bible? Proclaim. Proclaim. Great. You may proclaim or declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Who do you declare and proclaim that to, by the way? The world. Right? What's that called? Witness. See? So, if you worship, worship leads to what? To witness. Because if I'm really worshiping God, what am I really saying about God and what am I saying about me? What am I really saying? When I'm really in the spirit and the heart of worship, what, is it, what am I really acknowledging? I'm, compl- I'm abandoned unto God. I'm a living sacrifice offered unto God, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? It is my life given unto Him. And that being the case, when I recognize, like Colossians says, that He has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His own Son, and I really have believed that, that I really was, like you were saying, which most people don't believe, 
I really was in the kingdom of darkness. Right? That in 1986, I was a crispy critter. Okay? And I thank God he didn't come back in 1986. Because in 1987, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Right? When I really, really believe that it is His work and His mercy and His love that has fundamentally regenerated my heart, and now I get to that place where I worship Him and I, and I walk with Him, then I have to, as a chosen person, I have to now proclaim. What? What does He say? Declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Isn't that good? That's what I do. I have to. And so, uh, that's what we do now. We are people who are a worshipful people and a people who witness to his, marvel, to his marvelous light. So, a church that just does worship, okay, that doesn't do witness, is an imbalanced church. They're a church who is not really uh, living out of the overflow of what God has done for them. And it's the same for us as individuals. I mean, I know for me personally that when I don't allow my life and my words to, to go out to people, I feel a sense of, I, don't, I feel a sense of, I'm not really doing what God wants me to do. And then there's those times, you guys ever done that where you finally talk to your friend? Or you finally talk to that family member? Or you finally talk to a co-worker? Or you finally kind of cross that bridge on spiritual things a little bit with them? And there was a sense of fulfillment? You guys ever feel that feeling? Like, whew, Man, that was right. That, that felt right. And the reason is because now you're in tune. You're in line with what it is that God has us to do. See? So, the note is worship leads to witness, which therefore leads back to worship. And it's this perpetual cycle that goes on. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, and he, and he has, I mean, he sees me talking to people about the Lord. And he knows that I really try hard to watch my life out there. And, and you're right. So, in that sense... You know, it is nice to see that it's a reflection of what he sees in my life at work out there in kind of a secular setting. Uh, but I also know him well enough to know that what he also meant by that is that he really sees, you know, the Holy Spirit and Walt, you know, up there, which is so far from the truth. You know, he's just so misguided in this distinction between laity and priesthood. Um, you know, and I've talked to him a lot about that. He just is so down on his own life and his own heart that he just doesn't believe that he could ever be on par with any priest or Billy Graham or anybody. And to him, it's not a Catholic Protestant thing. To him, it's he just knows his heart isn't fully devoted to God. So how can I possibly be like a man of the cloth? You know. Let's look at this real quickly here. We got a few more, a few more minutes here. Um, here's what the church and individuals often become. Uh, number one, they become a religious gathering a lot of times where they become withdrawn from the world. What's that look like? What's a church like that look like a lot of times? Okay, yeah, it's a non-growing, stale church, right? Um, what maybe do they focus most of their energies on? What's that? It's us versus them. Yeah, us versus them, right, yeah. And you end up creating a church, and I don't want to knock any churches here, but just throw out some examples. You end up creating churches that, you know, you start getting your own what? You get all the accoutrements of the world, and you just bring them into the church so that people can come here. Now we've got our own cafeteria. You know, now we've got our own, you know, Starbucks, but it's his Starbucks, right? And you, you got all your own stuff that now, you know, everyone comes to here and you become so insulated that rather than saying go out, quit coming to this building 
You know, go there. I'd rather see, you know, 2,000 of you go and hit every Starbucks and Java, Java Law, whatever cafe out there than trying to bring them here. Go out there. See? I mean, how amazing would that be if we actually did that and said, quit coming to church, you know, and go out there. Um, I think that would be great. You know, what well, buddy of mine, he runs a ministry of about 700 college kids. And they did a lot of this, where they did all these promos and, and all kinds of stuff, bringing people in. And it really grew. I mean, it grew the, it grew the body, the Christian body. A lot of Christians began coming, and it was growing. It was great. But what he noticed was the percentage of lost people really getting saved was, was marginal compared to the number of believers that were coming, right? And so he finally they had a fundamental shift in their philosophy and one semester, he said, that's it. We're not doing, we're not doing this anymore. And their Tuesday night deal that they did, um, he said every Tuesday, they would all meet. And he said, and he would give them a, a mission for that night. And they would all disperse and not come back. And they would go out and he'd say, this is where we're going. You guys are going. And he'd name the places. And suddenly they would scatter. And, you know, he said about half of them wouldn't do it. They would just leave and... You know, eventually what ended up happening is you had from 700, you had about now 200 that were coming each week that were ready for their mission. But still, now you had 200 people going out into the city, going to all these different places to go and share the gospel. Isn't that great? And he said, man, he would take that over 700 coming in and having a little insulated worship service for the third time of the week, you know, and he'd take 200 going out any day. And it's completely changed kind of the ethos of their of their ministry. So, got to be careful that we're not so much into felt needs and practical needs that we become withdrawn. But the other way is that you can become such a social movement that you become kind of conformed to the world. Uh, you become so much about benevolent causes and you become kind of a social club. That You know, this is actually, if any of you went through my series with Tony Campolo, um, Speaking My Mind, how many of y'all did that book with me on Wednesday nights at The Point? Three of you, wonderful. Where are the rest of y'all been? Where are y'all been? All right. His very first chapter was great on this. He was talking about the problem with mainline denominations um, is that they have become this and that the reason they're losing fifty to 70,000 members a year is because they've become nothing more than just a religious social club that they come in and people are dying for a mission. See? They don't want another gathering on Sunday morning that's just like the world. We don't want to be the Kiwanis Club. We don't want to be the, the Noon Optimist Club, right? As good as those things might be. That's not who we are, right? We are the kingdom of God on earth that now sh- shows our light before men. So we have to be careful. So, uh, Alec, Dr. Alec Vidler has a great term, uh, Roman numeral 4 he uses. He says the church needs to become what he calls a holy worldliness, which is, I really love that. What he means is, um, if we looked in John 17, the idea is that we need to become immersed in the world, but not absorbed by the world, right? Um, what does it mean to be immersed in something? If something is immersed in, you don't lose your identity, right? Yeah, there you go, right. You're, you're in a swimming pool, but so you're immersed in it, but you do not become the pool, Right? As opposed to absorb by, which is what? What's a good example there? 
salt. So yeah, you put salt and it just kind of absorbs in, right? And now it's salt water. It's water. It's what's that? Salt water. Salt water. Right, right. Um, so what we are is we're people who are immersed in the world, and we need to recognize that. In fact, look at John 17 just for a second. I I really want you to see this one text here. This is probably Jesus' most powerful prayer. It's his great prayer for the disciples and for all of us just before he goes, before he gives up his life. 15 to 21, look what Jesus says here. He's praying to the Father, and he says, My prayer, verse 15 of chapter 17, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Right? What's that? Absorption. Right? They're not absorbed by the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world. What's that called? Immersed in. I have sent them into the world. See? We're immersed in it. We're not absorbed by it. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And then he finishes up. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' biggest prayer is, is what? What is it about us? That we be one. And we would be one in the world, not of the world, and that we would shine our light before men that the world might look at us and see unity and love and distinction between us and the world. See? That's the key. So, finally, Roman numeral 5. Two extremes, and the next week we're going to kind of do the middle road. Extremes to avoid during the Gospel. A. Too little elasticity. That means it's too rigid. This is, um, this is the person who feels like um, you haven't shared the gospel unless what? Unless you've said all the right words, unless you uh, told them that Jesus has to uh, come into your heart, whatever that means, right? Um, these key words that you have to say. I got, uh, who was it? Gosh, a couple of weeks ago. I got in a big debate with this guy that um, he was all over Joel Osteen for rarely ever using the word sin, right? He uses the word failures and mistakes, and he uses all these more contemporary words. Uh, and aside from that, I challenged him, and I said, you know what? So why do you, why do you feel like the gospel has to have the word sin in it? What if the word sin was the word that was so common in a certain time, and today it's a word that maybe is more of a stumbling block? I mean, what if you just use a more modern connotation for what sin is, and you, you don't necessarily have to use that word? I think sometimes you can be so rigid in the language that you have to use the word sin in the gospel presentation. And I know lots of people that believe that. I don't personally feel like you have to use the word sin, but I think you have to communicate what? Right, the meaning, right, that there is a separation between man and God because there's something within man that has gone wrong. And therefore, man now continues to do things that separate him from God because of his moral failures before God. See, I think that communicates just as much of the meaning of sin as sin. Missing the mark, right, yeah. 
Um, clearly, it's a word that's used in the New Testament, which is why they use it. But you know, just because the word is in the New Testament, we have to be careful that we don't suddenly deify the word and say, well, if it was good enough for Paul to use, I should use it. You know, you just got to be careful. You got to know your culture. That's a great point, right? I mean, sin was an archery term that was used to help convey through a metaphor what happened. You've missed the mark with God. Yeah, that's exactly right. The other problem is that you can have too much elasticity, making the gospel so relevant that the core meaning is lost, right? What's this look like? Don't name any churches, but what does this look like? You, see, you ever see what this, what's that? Theatrics, yeah. Theatrics and, and so much drama and so much trying so hard not to what? Offend that I just want you to know that, that Jesus is your friend. Right? Well, actually, before He's your friend, what does the Bible say He is? We are what of God? We're enemies of God. Right? And so He's not just your He's not your friend right now. If you don't know Him, He's not your friend. Right? You are an enemy of Him. Now, He wants you to come to Him, but until you do, you are an enemy of God. See, and what you do is you end up chopping off so much of what the Gospel is at the expense of really showing them what the truth is because you don't want to offend them that you don't really clearly articulate what the gospel is, and that is that you desperately need to be reconciled to Him because you're an enemy of God. We are haters and hostile in mind to God. See, and so now that language we can use differently, but you got to communicate the meaning of that somehow so that the gospel is clearly understood by people. Okay, is that, is that good? You guys see that kind of well, what this gospel is about? So. You know, but rather than doing three weeks on practical evangelism, I really wanted to make sure we had a sense of what we're about, why we're doing what we're doing, what is essential to the gospel meaning, okay? And so the next two weeks, we're going to actually look at kind of practical, what is the gospel next week, what is it, how to share it, and different methods of sharing the gospel. That's what we're going to do over the next two weeks.